Welcome to the Intentional Encourager podcast, where each episode brings you compelling conversations and stories designed to entertain, enlighten, and encourage. And now here's your host, Brian Sexton. Welcome to the Intentional Encourager podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sexton. Thank you for joining us today on this debut edition of the Intentional Encourager podcast. So glad that you could join us today. We are releasing this podcast today, April the 8th, for a very special reason. I want to tell you the greatest intentional encourager that I ever knew, my dad, Jerry Sexton. Jerry was born in Barbersville, West Virginia, April the 8th, 1953. To his parents, Virgil Sexton Sr. and Oida Sexton. His parents at the time of his birth were 47 and 45. Relatively old for people having their 12th child. Well, relatively old for anybody having a child. I'm 47 myself right now. Cannot imagine having a child at 47 years old, especially a newborn child. My dad, Jerry, was the youngest of 12. 12 kids. One of his sisters he never knew because she died at three months old of a severe infection. But being the youngest, he still had a wonderful relationship with all of his brothers and sisters. Even up to the oldest sibling, a brother who was 28 years older than he was. In fact, Jerry had nieces and nephews that were older than he. And another fact about Jerry, his mom was pregnant with him at the same time one of his oldest sisters was pregnant with one of her children. In later years, I told my aunt that I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for those conversations when she was pregnant with her child the same time my grandmother was pregnant with my dad. When my dad was four years old, his father, Virgil Sexton Sr., was at church one night with the family. Virgil Sr., a year or two before, began to develop strokes that caused him not to be able to work and provide for the family. It was my now wife's grandfather, Sherman, who was going to the Little Baptist Church at the time, just across the road from where the family lived, and lived not too far away from where the family lived themselves. In fact, where we're recording this podcast is only about a quarter of a mile from the ground that the house that my dad's family lived on at this time in 1956-1957. Because of Virgil Sr.'s illness, Sherman, my wife's grandfather, took him flowers and visited him and just wanted him to know he was loved and cared for. This made a great impression on Virgil Sr., and he and the family, when he was able, at attended that little church called Hebron Baptist Church in Barbersville, West Virginia. One night, as he was able to attend, my grandfather, my dad's father, Virgil Sr., stood up to pray. This was not uncommon, but what followed next was very uncommon. As Virgil Sr. stood up to pray, he suddenly collapsed and was unable to be revived and died right there in Hebron Baptist Church in 1957. My dad, as I mentioned, was four years old at the time, and now, all of a sudden, he was faced with the prospect of growing up without a father. Ironically, my future in-laws were teenagers at the time, and both were in attendance. My future grand 
grandparents in law on both sides. My wife's maternal and paternal grandparents were both there. They have been very instrumental, meaning my wife's mom and my wife's grandparents, in telling me things about my grandfather and telling my dad things about my grandfather that he never knew because of them being involved at that time with my grandparents and their family. Fast forward to October 1996, my dad, some 39 years later, returned to that little Baptist church for the first time for my wedding to my wife. My wife's grandfather stood up to pray in that ceremony with us. After that traumatic event, my dad, Jerry, went on to have a pretty normal childhood and teenage years. His mom moved the family from that house in Barbersville closer to the Huntington area in a section of town called Guyandot. My dad grew up with his mom and later it would be just him and his mom and his two sisters, my two aunts. His senior year of high school in 1970, he worked at Marshall University in the summertime. The school system that he attended, Cabell County Schools, had a program for underprivileged kids in the Huntington area. He worked around the football program in the athletic department in the summer of 1970. And for my dad, that was a match made in heaven because my dad loves sports and he especially loved the thundering herd of Marshall University. My dad would get on a bus or hop a ride with somebody and head down to Gullickson Hall, which was the gymnasium on campus at that time, and would wash long laundry, or do whatever they needed him to do to help the athletic department, and namely the football team. The 1970 Marshall football team is one that is historic in college football annals, and I'll tell you that story in just a moment. My dad met a gentleman named Gene Morehouse. Gene was the sports information director and the play-by-play voice at Marshall at the time. Gene knew my dad's story of how he lost his dad at a young age and knew my dad's family situation having very little money and knowing why my dad was working at Marshall University to help his family. Gene knew that my dad was the sports editor of his local high school newspaper and loved sports and he knew that my dad wanted to eventually become a sports writer but there was no way that my dad was going to be able to afford to go to college because of his family's economic situation. Gene Morehouse decided to help. And working with the dean of the College of Journalism, Gene was working on a scholarship with my dad and the dean so that my dad could attend Marshall University in the fall of 1971 as a freshman. In the fall of 1970, for home games, my dad would go down to Fairfield Stadium and do whatever he could in the pregame to help the team watch the game from the stands during the game and then after the game we'll go back to the locker room and do what he needed to do to help them clean up and get ready to go home for the evening. This was great fun for my dad. He got to be around all the Marshall football players and literally had one of the best seats in the house to watch the game. The Marshall team in 1970 
was a team on the rise. They were coming off probation, but they were still a young team under then head coach Rick Tolley. It was coming up to the November 14th game, a game they would play on the road against East Carolina University. And this was a big deal for the boosters and the athletic department in the Marshall community. This was the first time they would take a chartered airplane to a road game. My dad was 17 at the time. Had he been just a few months older, he likely could have gone to every road game with the team and traveled with them. But because he was still 17 and not due to turn 18 until April of 1971, by NCAA rules, he could not travel with the team because he was a minor. This is an important part of the story. November 14, 1970, Marshall plays at East Carolina University. The day before on the 13th, the Thundering Herds contingency flies from Huntington, West Virginia to Kinston, North Carolina, some 20 to 25 miles from Greenville, where they would play East Carolina the next day on November 14, 1970. The Marshall team would go down that day 17-14. This would be the last game played for that team in the 1970 season. In reality, it would be the last game 37 Marshall University players would ever play in their lives. On the way home, coming back from Kinston to Huntington, it was a rainy, foggy night, and the plane was coming in a little after 7 p.m. If you know anything about West Virginia geography, both airports that serve our region, Huntington Tri-State Airport and Yeager in Charleston, West Virginia, both land and take off on top of mountains. There's a runway strip built. It's a very long runway strip, but it's literally on top of a mountain. The pilot flying into Huntington that night was trying to land the plane and misjudged the runway. The plane slammed into the side of the mountain and it killed all 75 on board. Look it up. It is the single worst air tragedy involving a sports team in United States history. That night, my dad's dreams of going to college perished with that plane. As Gene Morehouse, who had worked so diligently to try to get my dad a scholarship, perished on that plane. My dad was on a date that night with my mom and heard about the plane crash on the radio as most of the people that lived in our region did. It was a devastating thing. Young children lost parents on that plane. My dad had to come up with a plan B. He ultimately graduated from Huntington East High School in early June of 1971. Little did he know just a couple of weeks later, my grandmother, his mother, would pass away. This was a devastating thing for my dad, but my dad had to quickly adjust to adulthood. He and my mom, Debbie, married on July 23rd, 1971, and just 13 short months later, here I came, bouncing baby Brian on August 13th, 1972. Two sisters of mine followed along, one in December of 1974, and 15 years later, an adopted daughter in early 1990. My dad worked a few sales jobs while we were growing up and doing dad things like playing wiffle ball, playing catch, putting up a basketball hoop with me, 
working around the yard and other things. He was very involved with my sister. And then when my baby sister came along, he was even more involved trying to raise a newborn. You see, when my baby sister came along, I was a senior in high school, had just turned 17, and my sister was 15 at the time. So my dad and mom had teenage kids, and now all of a sudden, another little bouncing baby girl came into the picture. He was active in the churches we attended. My dad sang solos. He sang in trios and in choirs and in quartets and led congregational worship. Church was a big part of my life growing up. My dad made sure that my mom and my sisters and I were always in church. Every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, we were in church. I remember playing Little League and sometimes we would have a Wednesday evening in practice, my dad would say, nope, you're going to miss practice. It's church night. We don't miss church for ball games. I didn't understand that at the time. I understand it now. Since he didn't get to attend Marshall University, I attended Marshall University in the fall of 1990 and went on to get my bachelor's degree from Marshall University in marketing. In 1996, at the age of 43, Jerry saw his oldest two children, marry and leave the house. In 2000, at age 47, he and my mom, Debbie, welcomed their first grandchild, my son. In 2006, his first granddaughter was born to his middle child, my sister, and her husband. In 2008, he became pastor of the New Covenant Pentecostal Church in Proctorville, Ohio, and would later move that congregation to a neighboring community in Chester. Chesapeake, Ohio. In 2012, he and I teamed up to work for the same company for the first time. I'll never forget that. My dad called me and said to me, son, I need to talk to you a minute. When he said that to me, and he didn't say that often, I knew something big was coming. He said to me at the time, Brian, I have a lot of things on my plate. You know what I'm dealing with, with your sister, pastoring a church and trying to work this territory. At the time, my dad was covering parts of seven states with the company that he worked for. And he told me, he said, I just can't do it by myself anymore. I need some help. And I talked to my boss about you and he wants to pursue this opportunity. I was stunned. I was working for a company at the time and my wife and son and I had different schedules. I worked at night. They were home at night. They were gone during the day. I was at home during the day. So this was an opportunity for me to get reconnected with my family. As well, it was an opportunity to work with my dad, but I had some reservations. I wanted my dad to be my dad. I loved my dad being my dad. It's the reason we didn't go to church where he pastored, because I just wanted him to be my dad. I didn't want him to be my pastor. But now he wanted us to work together. And in hindsight, it was the greatest professional decision I ever made. For the first three months there, my dad and I worked side by side every day. We traveled together. We covered parts of nine states together. We talked about everything and we had dinner together and we had breakfast together. We did everything together because we traveled together. It was 
wonderful time. It was the greatest 10 months of my life until it all came to a sudden abrupt end on December 6, 2012, when Jerry Sexton, at age 59, passed away in his sleep in a hotel room with my mom by his side. There's not a day that goes by that I don't miss my dad tremendously. I missed him being at my son's high school basketball and baseball games. I missed him being at my son's high school graduation and seeing him start his first day of college. I miss my dad seeing his nieces and nephews grow up. I miss my dad. But what still remains are the lessons that he taught me. First, my dad taught me how to love. He loved my mom. They were married for 41 years. In fact, one time when I had already moved out of the house, my mom wanted to sell their home that I grew up in and move to the country and get some horses. She had always had a dream of having horses. But my dad at the time loved to play golf, and he knew the money he was spending on playing golf was going to have to be cut out so they could get horses. To my remembrance, my dad only played a few rounds of golf the rest of his life. Into their 30s, my parents had some rough patches, but my mom and dad worked through those rough times, and they were faithful to each other till the very end. And my dad, through that faithfulness to my mom, taught me how to love. My dad loved me. From the first time that I was old enough to remember, my dad was always there. My dad was the one that taught me to read. He taught me to love sports. He taught me to sing. He taught me to laugh. He taught me how to be faithful and love my wife, how to be a great father to my son, how to be a great salesperson and employee, and most of all, how to love God with all my heart. My dad taught me how to love people. For you see, my dad loved people. He was the kind of person that loved loved being around other people. He was the persona of a people person. He knew how to be kind to people, generous to people, and how to make people feel absolutely important. If you were around my dad any length of time, you got a pat on the back, you got a hearty laugh, you got a smile, a handshake. My dad would go to funerals. My dad would always show up for important events because that's how much he loved people. The second thing my dad taught me was how to work. My dad believed in hard work. He had always worked from the time that I was a little boy all the way to his death. Even in times when he was underemployed, he worked hard and he worked with all his might. In 1971, he got his first professional job. In the mid-90s, he became a top salesperson for the top auto electrical distributor in the country. For 12 years, my dad helped build a small family-owned business in southern West Virginia into a national player in rotating electrics. When I was 17, my dad told me, he said, son, if you want to drive and get your driver's license, you're going to have to get a job and help pay for it. So I did that. I got a job at a grocery store, bagging groceries and carrying out groceries. Ironically, it was a job where customer engagement was vitally important. I had to be nice and friendly and serviceable to people coming in the grocery store. That part I learned from my dad. But the greatest thing my dad taught me about work was how to work in the kingdom of God. He taught me that working in the kingdom of God was the greatest work that a man or a woman could ever do. Because that work was eternal. I still work in the kingdom of God to this day. Whether out in public or in the church or whatever he was doing, work related. My dad always believed in the scripture. Whatsoever thy hands find to do, do it with all thy might as unto the Lord.
the Lord. My dad not only believed it, but he lived it. And lastly, my dad taught me how to serve. He served my mom by doing projects with my uncle to improve their house. My dad was not mechanically inclined. My dad... You wouldn't call him a handyman, but yet through working with my uncle and doing projects, my dad became quite adept at doing things and fixing things because he wanted to serve my mom and make their house better. He served my sisters and I by being at all of our events growing up. My dad was at every Little League game, every Senior League baseball game. Everything I was doing that he could be a part of, he was there, and ultimately, when his grandchildren were doing things, my dad was right there. He served his brothers and sisters as someone who pulled everyone together. He helped my uncle when my uncle started a church in the mid-1980s, and he helped my disabled aunt and my legally blind uncle by putting their home on his property and doing things for them and giving them money when they needed it to help them along. My dad served the churches that he attended in leadership and music all the years I was growing up, and all Ultimately, as the pastor of the church, he helped found. My dad served his friends. He had a friend named Mike White that we went to church with. And Mike, many years ago, had stage four cancer. And my dad loved Mike. And he helped win him to the Lord. And he knew he had to do something. My dad organized a song fest where we raised money to help Mike and his family through a very difficult time. I'm proud to say that Mike, to this day, is still doing very, very well and never forgets that. In fact, he brings that up often when we see each other about the time that my dad helped him. I remember the time that when we attended a new church, Bible Apostolic here in the area, that they did a praise fest every year and the music director that put it on, my dad went to her and said, I have an idea of something that we could do a little bit better. And my dad called his friends and for the next several years, friends of my dad that had choirs would come and join and they were glorious times and wonderful celebration of songs. My dad served his customers. He wasn't going to let anyone outserve his customers. My dad came up with a slogan for the company that he worked with when he ultimately passed away, a company called Electric Motor Service. And he said, service may be our last name, but it's our first priority. They had that made into a tagline for the company. They put it on hats and business cards. And my dad lived that out. He would not let any of his competition outserve him when it came to his customers. But the greatest act of service my dad taught me was he taught me how to serve God. My dad was an example to me of serving God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your might. As the scripture teaches us, to his dying day, my dad served the Lord and taught my sisters and I and his grandchildren how to do the same thing. I have preaching notes that my dad left with all the things that he was talking to his church about. One of the things he was purposeful about teaching to his church was serving God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. My dad would do funerals for people that he never even knew, but he just wanted to serve those families that needed comfort in a time of need. My dad was the one that really taught me how to serve God. And I'm so grateful for those lessons to this day. My dad was one of a kind. He was the most unique man I ever knew. And today, I'm grateful to you for allowing me to tell you his story. For you see, his story in large part impacted my story. And it impacts me to this day. I want you to be encouraged because my dad would want you to be encouraged. I want stories to help you and to lift you up because my 
my dad told stories from his life and people he knew to other people that would lift them up and encourage them. He wanted you to be encouraged. And I believe if he were sitting here talking to you with me today, he would say to you, it's going to be okay. Things you go through in life are going to be okay. My dad would want to encourage you. He would want to put his arm around you and tell you that everything was going to be all right. And so today in this podcast, I wanted you to know the ultimate intentional encourager in my life, Jerry Sexton. I would encourage you if your mom or dad is still around, give them a call. Send him a text. Tell him you love him. Hug him a little tighter. Tell your kids, your wife, your husband, that you love them. That would be what my dad would do. I have a picture on my wall in the studio where I'm recording. And my dad is in Alaska. And he and my mom went there on their 40th wedding anniversary as a gift from their church. And my dad is smiling and he's having a great time. Dad, as I look at your picture, thank you for what you taught me. And I love you with all my heart. Thank you for joining us on the Intentional Encourager podcast. And remember, everyone, everywhere, at any time and any place can be an intentional encourager.